one of my favorite songs. I always, I get convicted when we sing that song because it's, it's what I know my Lord requires of us. And in my mind, I know that it's what we should desire. And I find myself thinking every time we sing that song, it's my flesh and my heart are doing everything it can to keep me near to God. And it's, boy, it is a struggle. Uh, but it's, it's just what we need. And may it be the desire of all of our hearts to be near to God every single day. Our passage this evening, as we look at another parable of Christ, is Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles tonight. Uh, we'll begin in just a moment by looking at the first 13 verses. Your Bibles may have different headings as to what the title of this parable is. Uh, my Bible lists this as the unjust steward. The unjust steward. I've titled this message tonight, Luke 16, 1 through 13, a lesson on stewardship. A lesson on stewardship. Money is something Jesus spoke quite a bit about. In fact, about one-third of the 40 or so parables that Jesus taught had to do with money and earthly riches of some kind. And this fact is sadly often cited by false prophets and the prosperity preachers of today because all they want to do is talk about money. They use this fact to justify their obsession with material and temporal wealth. And sadly, most of them are such smooth talkers that if you didn't know any better, you might be convinced that money and wealth was all that Jesus spoke of or that God blesses faithful Christians by making them filthy rich. But on every occasion where Jesus spoke of money, the message that he delivered was actually quite the opposite. Not that he's going to fill your bank account with more money than you can imagine, but it was most of the time the opposite. On every occasion that we see this, and we'll see this here tonight as we look at Luke chapter 16, Jesus said in Mark chapter, 20, Mark chapter 10 and verse number 24, he said, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? We also see Jesus say, after speaking about the pursuit of material wealth, in Matthew 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So he's setting the priorities where they need to be, not on the pursuit of material possessions and wealth, but on seeking God and his kingdom first. At no point, at no point did Jesus ever do or even say anything that ever hinted towards encouraging people to make it their life's purpose and pursuit to pursue material wealth and even earthly possessions. When Jesus tells the story, for example, of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 12 and verses 16 to 21, he does so to illustrate how riches can actually be a barrier preventing people from entering his kingdom. Uh, following his encounter with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verses 23 and 24, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now these stories, as well as so many more, 
all which are intended to teach us that we as human beings here on earth are merely stewards of everything that the Lord has given us, all the earthly resources that we have in our care, we are just stewards of them, and we must be wise and faithful with all that God has allowed us to have and to take possession of for the short time that we exist here on earth. The Bible very, very clearly speaks out against the love of money. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 10 through 11, the Bible says, For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Jesus seems to put the exclamation at the end of the matter in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verses 19 to 21, where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable that echoes the same idea, but in a more unusual way. This parable has puzzled so many people because the one in the spotlight is a lying, cheating, unfaithful, unjust steward who was about to be fired. Not exactly the one that you would think would be called to the attention to learn a lesson from. This servant schemes and does some crafty business deals using his master's wealth to buy friendships that are going to be useful to cushion his fall from his cushy position. With your Bibles open, follow along as I read the first eight verses here in Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 verses 1 through 8. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer a steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg, I am ashamed." I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and he said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. This verse, verse number eight, causes all sorts of confusion because in the same sentence, the man is called an unjust steward. It also says of him that he's commended. What a strange case for a person to be commended. Most of Jesus' stories were, were used to this. They, they had shocks. They had surprise endings. They had just this factor where something happened that you weren't expecting. But this is probably the most surprising of all. 
It seems impossible to try and teach a positive spiritual lesson from the unethical actions of an unrighteous, unjust steward. I assure you, this is no mistake. Jesus was the greatest teacher, and the lessons we learn from this parable are truly profound. I want to first begin by taking a closer look at the story itself. So number one, just take a look at the story. The main character is this unjust steward who is referred to as such in verse number eight. Verse number eight says, and the Lord commended the unjust steward. There is no question as to his crooked character. All of his actions reveal that this man was a crooked businessman, that he was conniving, that he was completely unprincipled. He was shameless in his evil doing. And this is not something that just happens overnight. He doesn't wake up one day and decide, this is how I'm going to be from now on. But most likely, there was a succession of years of evil compromises and some business dealings that led to him getting to this point. We see his downfall when he handled his master's possessions, the rich man's possessions, a way that was wasteful. Verse number one says, And he said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accusing to him that he wasted his goods. He was wasteful of the rich man's possessions. He was probably overspending. Perhaps he used his master's possessions and resources and goods for personal expenses. But either way, he was thinking that his master was never going to find out, never going to check up on him. He was thinking there was no accountability whatsoever, so he was free to do whatever he wanted. Until one day, one day, a credible accusation was made to the rich man, and the steward was called into question. Look again at verses 1 and 2. And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. The steward is basically fired here. And he is required to give an account of all that he's done. He's not quite fired here. He's told, as soon as you give an account of what you've done, you're gone. The steward never thought this day would come. And that is why we see him in the next several verses basically scramble to get some things in order. He knew that any report that he would have to show and come up with was going to reveal that he had indeed been wasteful of the rich man's possessions and all of his credibility, all of his good graces and the favor that he had with the rich man was all going to be gone. By his own admission, he was not cut out to do any other type of work. Notice what he says in verse number three. He says, And the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. So by his own admission, he wasn't cut out to do any other type of work. The job that he had as a steward was the job that he was most suited to do. If he went on Indeed.com and filled out all of his qualifications, all of his credentials, it would have come back and said, you're fit to be a steward. This is your lot in life. This is what you were wired to be. So he knew that this is all he could do. He may have lost one job, which is what he's basically losing here, but he opts to cheat the rich man even more. He lost his job, but he goes into self-preservation mode, and he needs to make sure that once the paperwork comes down and he's truly fired and it's all finalized, 
that there was going to be something for him to fall back on, that there is going to be someone else who will turn around and hire him. So he decides to cook the books of the rich man. He goes to everyone that owed the master money, and he starts slashing their debt, which, of course, was going to please each of these debtors, right? The first man he comes to, and in verse number four and five, he says, I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Verse five says, so he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and he said unto the first, how much owest thou unto the Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Cut it in half. We've just erased half of your debt just like that. Of course, these debtors were going to be thrilled by what was going on here. He, but he was cheating his master out of money that the master was due. And this steward was smart enough to learn, though, that even if he couldn't repair the relationship with the rich man, with his master, with his boss, he would make sure that he would still be in the good graces of everyone that he did business with. He basically came to each of these men and he said, you know, because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to forgive a portion of your debt. How much is it that you owe? A hundred measures of oil. You know what? I'm feeling pretty good today. Why don't you just cut that number in half? Let's call it an even 50 and we'll be good. Because I'm such a nice guy. Oh, and by the way, you owe me one. No matter how you look at the story, this steward always comes out as a scoundrel. It's not by mistake that Jesus refers to him in verse number eight as an unjust steward. There are no extra or hidden details that would make all of the terrible actions and practices of the steward make him come out in a positive light. There wasn't anyone that held a knife back to his back and said, all right, you do this right now or else. You go to that debtor and you make sure and cut the money in half. You steal from your boss or else I'm going to harm you. No one was doing this. This was all willful decision on the part of the steward. He was wasting the goods of his master. And Jesus told this parable for a reason. And the details of the parable were specifically chosen for a purpose, as confusing as they may be. If we're shocked at the surprise ending, that is what Jesus intended. And I imagine his original audience was just as shocked, maybe even more than what we are. When we look back at verse number one, we see that the main audience of Jesus' parable were the disciples. Look again, it says in the first few, first few words, and he said also unto his disciples. These are the main audience. This is the main people that he's speaking to here. This parable is for believers, and the message is all about discipleship. The rich man in this parable is incredibly wealthy. He is so rich that he is not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of his own business affairs. He is so rich that he pays people to handle and to manage his finances, to handle and run his company while he relaxes on the beach and he plays golf all day. He is literally out doing his own thing. Everyone else is taking care of his business while he just relaxes. Based on the debts that he is owed, the first two men the steward went to, this man we know is incredibly wealthy. The first man in verse number six owed a hundred measures of oil. And the next says owed a hundred measures of wheat. This rich man probably lived in some grand estate a good distance away from the actual corporate headquarters of his business because he obviously didn't have firsthand information of what the steward was doing and how he was wasting all his goods. 
Now, as we look at the steward, it seems pretty clear that he must have at least started off as a pretty decent manager, one that was very skilled, one that was very resourceful to be able to get into such a position in the first place. He's basically running the rich man's company while the rich man can go on vacation 24-7. He admits in verse number three that he's not your typical blue-collar worker. Again, verse number three, then the steward said within himself, when he's found out that he's wasted all the goods, what shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I'm ashamed. He says, I, I, can't, I can't do anything else. This is the only thing I'm good at. I, I, can't, I can't be one of the workers that I'm in charge of. I can't do anything else. Certainly not any, any grunt work with my hands. This is not what I'm cut out to do. I'm cut out to be a steward, and that's all I'm good at. He was not used to manual labor. And honestly, the thought of it terrified him. He was more of a higher-up kind of person. Most people respected him. Even his master, even the rich man, had full confidence in him to trust him to run the business while he was out doing whatever he wanted to do. The two men probably had a good, long-standing relationship of mutual trust. You don't just hand over your business to someone to run it from day to day who you don't know and you don't trust. So these two men must have had a pretty good relationship to the point where the steward basically was able to act and to speak on behalf of the owner, the rich man, who is the owner of the company. And the rich man didn't want to be cumbered down with sitting in an office all day. And so he detached himself from the business, leaving things in the hands of the trusted steward. And word eventually comes to him of the steward's mismanagement, which have never come to the rich man before. And were it not for some outside source who we don't even know of, word would have never come. The steward probably started building up a good name and a good reputation in the eyes of the rich man to where the rich man felt comfortable not being present at board meetings, not knowing what was happening with his company from day to day. And as long as he heard that the company was still thriving, as long as the money was still flowing, he was pleased. And the longer the rich man stayed away from the corporate offices, never came in to just pop in and see how things were, the more the steward took advantage of his position. Realizing that he had absolutely no one to be accountable to, he began to waste the rich man's goods. And the news of this clearly shocked the rich man because there's no track record of this. And the two men would have had probably a good relationship. And based on how the steward responds to the accusation, there's, tr there's some truth to the report. Look again at what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, and he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So an accusation makes its way to the ears of the rich man, wherever he is, but he is apart from the general headquarters of his company. Word comes to him. Hey, your steward, he's up to some stuff. I don't know exactly what's going on, but the books don't line up. Numbers aren't matching. Something is going on here. And so, verse 2, the rich man calls him in and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Accusations have been coming up about this. How is it that this is happening? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. And so, you would think that if this man's innocent, listen, I've got nothing to hide. Here are the books. Everything's in order. That's not what he does. He panics. He panics because he knows there is some truth to these accusations. He knows that there is something that he has been up to probably for quite some time and that the gravy train is coming to an end. 
The once trusted steward had violated the trust of the rich man. And there's nothing he could do to make matters right. There's a saying in the business world, be slow to hire and quick to fire. And as soon as the rich man hears the accusation against the steward and knows that there's truth to it, he acts. Look again at verse number two. It says, And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. The rich man demands the steward to come and to give a full account of all the business dealings. I want to know a record of everything that you've done for the last six months or a year or whatever it is that's been called into question. I need to know. And then he says he's going to be fired. This was honestly a very poor decision by the rich man. If the original accusation of financial impropriety was credible, which obviously it was, why would he ever give the steward time to do more damage? When there are clear signs of mismanagement, you don't give people time to get things in order and finish what they're working on if they've already made a mess of things to begin with. You relieve them right away of their duty because they obviously were not doing their job correctly to begin with. And this steward, he'd proved that he could not be trusted when there was a price to pay for wrongdoing. When he could get in trouble, he was proving that he was not someone to be trusted. But now he knows he's going to be fired and he's got nothing to lose. So all bets are off, right? He was already wasting the master's goods to begin with, and now the master says, all right, get the affairs in order because you're about to be fired. He knows he can't get anything in order because it's all a mess. So now with nothing to lose, he's going to go really on a rampage and make the matters even worse, but better for himself. So this steward, he was caught red-handed, but he schemed to make sure that his final acts as steward he would make sure to set himself up in the good graces of other businessmen around town. Look again at verse number four. He said, I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, so he's not yet fired, he's told it's coming. He says, they may receive me into their houses. So here is his plan. Debts, debts in that agricultural economy were normally paid at harvest time. The oil in verse number six most likely refers to olive oil, which was a very prominent staple in the Mediterranean culture. What was also a valuable commodity as well. It was unheard of at that time for a creditor to negotiate debts on commodities such as these and thereby avoid issues in times of drought, of crop damage, or even other financial troubles. For example, if you had some bad weather that came and just destroyed your crop as a farmer, the value of wheat and the value of oil would rise anyway. It would go up. A single bushel of wheat in hard times would be worth more than 10 bush bushels of wheat during good times. A creditor would actually find it to his benefit to accept a reduced payback in hard times rather than driving borrowers out of business. But that's not what was happening here. This was all about the unjust steward thinking only about himself. So before any of the debtors ever get wind of him being fired, no one knows this. He's been told this by the rich man, you're going to get fired, get your affairs in order. No one else gets wind of this. So before anyone else hears that he's actually on his way out, that he is no longer going to be a steward, he goes and he strikes deals to discount all the debts ranging 
from what we are told here, anywhere from 20% upwards of 50%. When the harvest time arrived, these men would owe significantly less than what they originally agreed to. So they were more than thrilled to take this wonderful deal that literally slashed their debt, in some cases, right in half. Technically, the steward still had the authority to do this because he's still steward. He hasn't been fired yet. This is still within his job description to do if he wanted to. So he's still employed. But the question is not of one could he do it, but should he do this? Morally and ethically, the actions of this steward were reprehensible. He was being fired because his master's resources, he was wasting them. And he figures, on my way out, it's okay to waste more of my master's resources to set himself up for the future. He knew that the master would find out about all of these actions. It's not as if he's not going to find out. But he knew he's going to find out, but he doesn't care. He's already getting fired. What else could be done? If he couldn't make an honest living, he would make a living any way that he could. If this was someone with integrity and someone who stood on principle, he probably would never have been in this position to begin with. So he slashed the debts of these people drastically, gave them a massive financial discount as he further conned his boss, the rich man, out of a massive fortune. So that's the story. But notice second, the shocker. The story doesn't end with the steward getting fired. It takes a really interesting turn. Look at verse number eight again. And the Lord, this is the rich man, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The rich man has just been conned out of a massive fortune with the final acts of the steward as his employee. And how does this rich man respond? He's impressed. He's impressed. Up until this point, it was pretty easy to be sympathetic towards the rich man as he appeared to be a victim in this entire story. But the fact that he admires the scheming and the conniving work of the steward lends us to believe that this rich man was probably one and the same. Perhaps he accrued his massive wealth through the same means, through lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, just like the steward was doing. Now let me just set the record straight. The rich man in this parable is not a picture of Christ. Jesus deliberately told the story in the realm of secular business where the actions of these men were quite commonplace. Even in today's world, the actions of these men would have been par for the course. In the business world, the motto is to do everything you can to get ahead, even if it means cutting other people down, lying, cheating, stealing, getting anything done to make sure that you end up on top. This is the type of mindset that is expected in a godless society. But I want you to notice something specific in verse number 8. Because what the rich man admires is not the steward's villainy, per se. Notice what it says here in verse number 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Because he had done wisely. The rich man was all set to punish the steward for being wasteful. 
The rich man certainly didn't approve of the steward's disloyalty. Neither did he think highly of the man's questionable character. Here in verse number 8, the rich man, he's not applauding the steward's loyalty or his honor, which he certainly had none of. What he's commending is the steward's ingenuity. He commended the unjust stewards as because he had done wisely. Even though the steward's plan was underhanded and cost the rich man a fortune, it was still ingenious. The clever nature of this scheme was what brought the rich man's praise. The steward had minimal time to operate, and he used his time wisely to set himself up for the future. He maximized all of his options and granted the creditors huge favors with the idea that he'd be able to cash in on those favors shortly after he got fired. The steward showed an amazing amount of foresight because he wasn't just thinking about how he can cover his tracks and hide all of his wasteful business dealings, but he's proactively thinking about how he can take care of his future. And I want you to notice third, the explanation. The explanation. Jesus gives his main point in verse number eight. Verse number eight is very profound. He says, And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Jesus declares here that sinners, the unsaved, and he classifies them in verse number eight, the children of this world, tend to be more clever, more ingenious, more diligent with regard to their short-term well-being than believers are in the work of laying up treasures for eternity. Think about it. Unbelievers have nothing to look forward to beyond this life. And many of them plan better and prepare better for things like retirement than believers who have the glorious hope of heaven waiting for us. Jesus isn't suggesting that we stop focusing on heaven and focus solely on the things of this earth, but there are some things that we can learn from the unsaved with regards to preparing for our future and having comforts in this life. People who are not looking ahead to heaven will do everything they can to get the best comforts and the best pleasures out of this life as possible. They'll do everything they can to make sure that they're taking full advantage of the time that they have here on earth before they're physically unable to do anything else. Jesus isn't commending their worldliness. He's not commending their lack of salvation, but how wise they are with the resources that they have and the time they have to utilize the resources that have been granted to them. Jesus commends their resourcefulness. You would think that as believers are proudly and excitedly looking forward to heaven, that we would be more active, more proactive, and more diligent to build for ourselves treasures in heaven. And Jesus makes three points to teach this lesson from the picture of this unjust steward. First, money is a resource that should be used for the good of others. Money is a resource that should be used for the good of others. Look at verse number nine. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. That literally means money and earthly wealth. Mammon of unrighteousness. That when you fail, the idea is when the money is all gone and when there's nothing left, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Money is a resource that should be used for the good of others. Jesus says that we should use our money to make friends of the people of God. Be generous with the people of God. Put your money 
to work for others. Help out fellow believers that are struggling. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25 and verses 35 through 40. In his Olivet Discourse, he says, For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? Or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, notice this, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. When you have done it, he says, to the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Fellow believers he's talking about. Along with this is the notion that our money should be used to support the ministry of the gospel. I've often wondered how many people we will meet in heaven who are there through an investment that we made in the gospel ministry. Where they heard and believed God's word and gained eternal life because we supported missionaries or we went out and we supported a local missions organization or we went out and we volunteered or did something to help in a kingdom cause. This is what Jesus is getting at here. The unjust steward, he used certainly some questionable tactics. His actions, though unjust, won him friends and secured his future. Jesus is reminding his disciples and he's reminding every single believer that we also are stewards. And we have our Lord's permission to be generous with his resources that we have in order to make friends for eternity. If a scheming, dishonest, disloyal, wasteful, earthly reprobate is wise enough to use his position to make friends for such a short period of time here on earth, how much more should believers use our master's resources to make friends for eternity? The message of verse number nine is that every believer's duty is to invest the temporary value of money into an enterprise that is going to yield eternal value as we give our money for the work of the ministry and to the people of God. There's nothing else you can do with money that is going to last forever. So the message is be wise with what, God, with what resources God has given you. Now, I'm not saying that you should all go to your bank right now, empty your accounts, and give it all to the church or give it all to missions and write a big fat check to the mission, or, mission organization you know, down the street. I'm not saying you should do that. But we're to be wise with our money. Jesus is teaching against this endless personal accumulation of earthly wealth because that is being wasteful of the master's resources. You want to not be an unjust steward? The unjust steward was accused of being wasteful of his master's goods. We're doing the same when we're not being wise with the money that God has given us. You may not think of it that way, but you're a steward who's been granted the money that you have from God. And when we're not faithfully giving to God and giving to the ministry and giving to the furtherance of the gospel, you're being a wasteful steward. Don't be wasteful, but be wise with the master's resources. Second, remember you are a steward using God's resources. You're a steward using God's resources. The first lesson was about helping for the needs of others. This lesson is about examining ourselves. 
Every one of us will have to give an account of what we've done with the resources that God has given to us. Notice what we're told in verses 10, 11, and 12 here in Luke chapter 16. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, which, again, is speaking of earthly wealth and, and, and riches, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? I have heard people say, if I had more money, I'd give more of it away. That is the biggest lie I've ever heard. Faithful people are generous because of their character, not because of their circumstances. A person who doesn't make a lot of money but spends every penny on himself is not going to miraculously become selfless once he hits the lottery and is now a mega millionaire. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. More money will only lead the self-indulgent to seek new things by which to satisfy their pleasures. This is why it is important for us as believers to never forget that we're stewards using God's resources. It doesn't matter if you have a whole lot or a small amount. Every bit of it belongs to God. And that way, when we understand that, we're not falling into temptation to want to spend every dime on ourselves. It's silly for people to wish for wealth when they haven't even been faithful with the resources that God has already given them. Why would God bless you when you've proven you can't even handle correctly the resources God has given you? You've proven to be a wasteful steward already. Why is God, a God, why is God going to grant you even more wealth? But the real point is that the stewardship that God is looking for is not about giving away large amounts of money. If you can do that, praise the Lord. God is looking for us to have integrity and have character. If you can honestly see the immense value of investing in eternity, you will invest with whatever resources God has given you. What we do with our money reveals the true state of our heart. Take a look at your bank statement someday. Take a real good look at it. And see where the majority of your money is being spent. Now, you have a mortgage, you have a car payment, I understand that. Those things aside, where are you spending the majority of your money? If you're spending more money eating out, if you're spending more money shopping for things you don't need, if you're spending more money doing things that offer you no long-term benefit, then you are giving to God and to the advancement of his kingdom, something is wrong. And I'm afraid that we're guilty of wasting the master's resources. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing at all wrong with eating out. There is nothing wrong at all about shopping. There's nothing wrong about going on vacation and doing things that are fun. But when all the resources that God has given us, and every resource has been given to us by God, if they're all used and spent for our pleasure and for our enjoyment, and little to nothing is given back to God and used for his service and for the advancement of his kingdom, we're wasting his resources. We have forgotten that we are his stewards. The irony is that some of us Christians act as if we need to do all of these fun and exciting things while we have time and while we have strength and while we have the energy, but the real fun and excitement comes when we are received into heaven. Not in the things that we're going to do here. Don't get me wrong, we have fun here. 
We do exciting things here. We spend loads of time with family and we're able to go on vacations and, and really enjoy one another's company. But the real excitement is not going to be here. The real excitement is when we're received into the glories of heaven. And third, don't let money become more important than God. Don't let money become more important than God. Look at verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Being a steward of God's resources is a lifetime commitment. Being a steward of God's resources is not an obligation that we fulfill once a week when the offering plate comes by in church. Jesus is saying here that the manner in which we treat our stewardship provides for us really a good test of our salvation. Those who truly love God cannot be a slave to money and material possessions. Those who waste all of their resources on things that offer no eternal value are not true stewards of God and honestly are probably not even saved at all. What people do with their treasure reveals where their heart truly rests. I read this, these verses earlier, but listen again to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is why... We're told in Proverbs 3, verse 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. In the New Testament days, the Pharisees were probably the perfect examples of people who claimed to be good stewards of God's resources. But their real God was money. And Jesus very plainly says here in verse 13, You cannot serve God and mammon. When we truly love the Lord, It'll never be a question as to who comes first in our lives. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a lesson here in stewardship. I pray, Lord, that as we've looked here at the unjust steward, that we've learned something, Lord. I pray that we've learned something about who you are and who we are, Lord, as stewards of the resources that you have given to us. Lord, may we not be unjust. May we not be wasteful with the resources that you've given, but Lord, may we live lives that are honoring to you as we use the resources to bring glory to your name. Lord, I know that it's not about selling off all that we have or never eating out or never doing anything exciting, but Lord, may our priorities be in the right place. That as we make time to be with our families and do things that are fun and exciting and eat out from time to time, that we would never lose sight of the fact that we are still your stewards and the resources that we have are the things that you have given to us. Even if it's from a, a good paying job that, you have, that you've allowed us to have or, Lord, through some wise investments, either way, these are resources that you have given to us. And, Lord, may we always be mindful that you should always come first, not the possessions, not the wealth, not the money. But the advancement of your kingdom and your service ought to be what is at our heart's desire. Help us in this struggle from day to day to keep our priorities as they should be, keeping you first at all times. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight as we close, we're going to sing hymn number 300.